Truth Espresso, episode 45. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hello, this is Daniel Minnick, and welcome to Truth Espresso. Uh, we are currently doing a series on economics, and I have been discussing the basics of economics primarily from the Austrian school view, which is I which I believe is the biblical view. And if you've been paying attention, you've been hearing me ramble on things, but I really have to consider myself a layperson, although I have been studying uh, Austrian economics and economics in the Bible for at least about 10 years now. But I think it would be apropos to bring someone who's actually credentialed to talk about economics and uh, maybe even get into some of the current situation that we all like to talk about as if we're experts on. But my guest today, this is a real treat for Truth Espresso. My guest today is Dr. Sean Rittenauer. Dr. Rittenauer is a professor of economics at Grove City College. He formerly worked as an economist at the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics. He holds a B.A. in economics from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa, and a Ph.D. in economics from Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. He is a member of the faculty in the Foundation for Economic Education Faculty Network. He is the author of the book, Foundations of Economics, A Christian View. And most importantly of all, uh, Sean Rittener, Rittenauer is a Christian. He uh, follows a reformed understanding of Christian theology. And so, Dr. Sean Rittenauer, welcome to Truth Espresso. Thank you very much for uh, having me. I'm uh, very happy to be here. So, uh, do you want me to call you Dr. Rittenauer or Sean? <laughs> you can just call me Sean, that's fine. <laughs> okay, so Sean, could you give me a little background about your Christian testimony for our viewers as uh, Truth Espresso is a member of the Christian podcast community, so we like to talk about Christian topics even when we're talking about economics. Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Um, I uh, was uh, blessed to have grown up in a family that uh, made sure we were in church on Sundays and Sunday school. And uh, my mom uh, became a, a Christian probably before I can I can remember. And I, from an early age, was you know made uh, aware of the gospel. And I believe uh, you know it's hard to. Sometimes it's you know hard to put your finger on what did you really understand when you were young, but I believe I embraced Christ at a at a young age, but didn't you know didn't fully understand you know everything that it meant to follow the Lord. And when I was um, in, uh, I must have been around fifteen. I uh, we were we I have an eclectic church history. I was baptized in the Methodist Church. When I was in junior high, we ended up 
uh, leaving and going to a fundamentalist Baptist church for a while, uh, for a couple of years. And um, the Lord used that uh, in, a, in, a, in a very uh, good way for me, uh, really impressed upon me uh, that, the, the, that the Bible is God's word and that I need to take it seriously. And that uh, if, if one is going to follow the Lord, you have to follow uh, with all your heart, with your whole heart. You can't uh, just uh, be a professor of the faith uh, in Christ and then uh, sort of think that, well, I've got my, you know, I've got my fire insurance so I can do whatever I want. And uh, the Lord really convicted me that I need to, I need to be faithful in following Christ. Soon after that, I was in, um, my family went to an evangelical free church for a while. I, I got married uh, in the evangelical free church. And then when I went to graduate school, uh, became a Southern Baptist for a while. The whole time I became more, uh, well, I went to college at Northwestern. Northwestern College was uh, probably the most conservative of the, of the three Reformed Church of America colleges. Uh, that they have. And so I felt I got some pretty good, I got really good uh, biblical instruction uh, there. And really at that point was acquainted with the idea of uh, developing a Christian worldview and applying uh, Christian doctrine and integrating it with all other uh, areas of life and all other intellectual disciplines. And so I began to think about, and I, I discovered economics at that time too. And so I began to think about where does economics fit in to you know reality as it's described by the scriptures? But anyway, once I got out of, uh, well, really from the time I was uh, in college, I became more and more, I guess I guess, convinced of uh, Reformed thinking, uh, Reformed theology. And uh, when I was in graduate school, discovered uh, some, I'll discover the, some writings of J. Gresham Machen and became acquainted with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And when I got the job here at Grove City, I was delighted to find out that they had an OPC church here in town. And it was the first church we visited, and we really never left. We, 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 vi we visited uh, a number of other churches in the area in the mornings, but always came back to the OPC church in the evening service. And after about a month or so, we decided that this is the place we want to be. And then the Lord continued to bless us there, here and uh, subsequently uh, became a, a ruling elder. So I'm actually now a ruling elder uh, in the OPC. And uh, as uh, it's not it's not a surprise, but the Lord has been faithful you know, every step of the way, even when uh, when I was less than faithful, he always is faithful. Well, amen. I, I can definitely relate to that. I have a background in um, independent fundamental Baptists, and I currently serve in an independent fundamental Baptist church. I do have a lot of affinity for um, the historical reform faith. And, you know, even though I've you know gotten into studying economics a lot, I've also taught uh, adult Sunday school in mm -hmm. several churches I've served in, been a member in over the years, and I've even taught a lot of uh, deep theology about you know identifying Christ versus a lot of the Christological controversies of history taught about um, Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, things like that and I as an independent Baptist I did have a lot of pressure as I was graduating high school to basically go do what's called go into the ministry like go to attend a Bible college and get a ministerial degree and become a pastor but as I was 
was graduating high school, I just figured that's not the route I wanted to take. And some people thought that I would make a good pastor. And, you know, I have given a few sermons in my youth. And as I said, Mm -hmm. I taught adult Sunday school, but I just never thought that that was what God wanted me to do. And I Mm -hmm. realized that God wanted me to be a computer programmer. (laughs) And so I went to a Christian college to learn uh, computer programming. And so that's what I do for my job. And I work in the mortgage industry. And I think that being a software developer in the mortgage industry has given me avenues really to talk about economics and what the Bible says about economics, even though that's not my profession. But so, Sean, how did exactly did you get into the field of economics? Like, why would that interest you? What really got you to think that, yes, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to pursue a degree and a career in economics. That's a that's a really good question. Yeah, I it's interesting too because a lot of times when people yeah ask me if they don't know me, you know, what do you do? And I tell them I am an economist or I teach economics. More often than uh, you'd like to think, you get this kind of scrunched up face, and sometimes they even say ooh. <laughs> but and for me, it was I, I really didn't know economics. I didn't really know what the discipline was, and I, when I went to college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to major in. And I thought maybe I might want to work for myself in some sort of business. So I kind of went in with the idea of majoring in business administration. And the advisor that I was talking with as as an undeclared, they had an advisor dealing with undeclared students. And he said, well, if you're going to major in business, you should probably take this principles of microeconomics class because you need to take it. And I've heard it's a pretty good class. I said, okay. And I took it. And almost from the first day of class, I really, really just liked the discipline. I, I really enjoyed the kind of questions that were being asked about, well, just, you know, the basic how do markets work and what determines prices and what could cause prices to change, um, what happens when the government imposes price controls or price floors, what are the consequences of taxation, and all those different kind of policy questions that a number of people are familiar with. I really liked the kind of questions that were asked, and I also really enjoyed the type of analytical, the economic analytics that uh, we use to answer these kind of questions. And so uh, I was always, I was very interested in economics, and and from from the very from my first exposure, I'm I'm somewhat thankful I didn't I didn't take it in high school. We did have an economics class in high school, it turns out, but I didn't take it, and I'm I'm pretty glad that I didn't because it turns out that the guy who taught it was. I think an actual ideological communist. And so I'm not sure, I'm afraid it could have gotten turned off completely. So the Lord spared me from that. But in any event, I I took my first class and really liked it. And the more I took economics, the more I liked it. The more business classes I took, uh, the less, the less I enjoyed them. Um, It wasn't that I hated them. They just, but they just didn't uh, grab me the way the economics classes did. And so I decided probably around my, my junior year that, well, my, I think by the end of my sophomore year, I decided I'm going to major in, and I was going to double major into my junior year. I said, I'm just going to drop the business administration major. I'm just going to focus on economics. And one of the hurdles I had to get over, and I was really interested in this question, how is economics worth being, uh, you know, pursuing as a career, is economics worth a life study, uh, or is it just something that is, is sort of fun puzzle solving, but it's more of an intellectual academic enterprise? 
Um, it's not that it's not that relevant, um, and it's not something really worth committing your life to as a vocation. And it was uh, during my senior year, I uh, purchased a copy of uh, Ludwig von Mises's uh, book, Human Action. And it was beginning to read that book where uh, sort of, in some sense, the foundation all fell in place. And the way Mises builds up uh, economics from the ground up, it became very clear to me that, yes, this is something real. This is not, you know, intellectual game playing that we start with a bunch of arbitrary assumptions. And then given the assumptions, we have this model and then we work through the model and that comes out with these neat conclusions that may or may not true depending on our assumptions. Mises doesn't start like that. He starts from the very basic fact of that humans engage in purposeful behavior, and he goes up from there. And that, to me, was really uh, very profound because that uh, is what I thought really was the same picture of man that we find in the scriptures uh, with recognizing the limitations that man has in terms of knowledge and in terms of moral nature. And from that point on, I became convinced, yes, economics is uh, an area where we, we, we actually do pursue truth if we do it the right way. And so from that point on, that, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an economist. I wanted to teach economics at the college level. And so by the time I graduated college, I knew I wanted to, to ultimately get a PhD in economics I was sort of tired of school when I graduated uh, a little bit, so I took um, I didn't I didn't go right into graduate school. I, I spent two years working at the Bureau of Labor Statistics in Washington D.C., and then I spent a little bit of time telemarketing and a little bit of time working at a uh, a large commercial bank in Omaha, Nebraska, in their credit card division. Uh, but then um, after I got married, I decided it's time to to get back on the vocation path, so I went to graduate school at Auburn and got my PhD. And then uh, it's been you know, teaching economics ever since. So you mentioned that you worked at the uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Now, that, that sounds like uh, something really impressive to have on someone's resume. So did you enjoy your work there? Or like, did you have any issues with working there at a, a government agency? Can you give Give yeah. us a little, a little bit about your experience there and maybe some of the issues you encountered. Yeah, I, um, I went into the Bureau of Labor Statistics primarily because it was, it was one of the few entities that were looking to hire someone for an economist position which a, with a bachelor's of economics. The vast majority of professional economics positions, they want at least a master's degree, but most of them want a, a PhD. And of course, I didn't have that. I just had a bachelor's degree, but they were advertising for bachelors in economics. And so I thought, well, let's give it a shot. And I didn't necessarily plan on going there. I thought, well, maybe there'll be other opportunities that present itself, but I'll go if perhaps. And so they put me through. And so they, I, you have to, I should have got a clue. I, I called them and asked for the application form. And I don't know, about a month or two went by. And I didn't get anything. So I called again and they said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have a record of you calling. We'll send you one out right away. And that that, that right there shows you a little bit about um, what happens in, in, in a government bureaucracy. 
But I did finally get it on the second time, got this big giant application form and filled it all out and set it in. And then uh, they put me through a two-day shotgun pattern of uh, interviews. I think I spoke to approximately 21 office managers in two days. Some of the meetings were with three managers at a time, but I met a lot of people. And because there are a large number of offices within the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, some, for instance, were OSHA offices, but then all of the consumer price index and the producer price index, those programs are produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There's a, a large number of occupational wage surveys and the employment cost index that's published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And all of those different surveys have their own office within the Bureau. And so I was interviewing with a bunch of different managers. I was able to get in, in a good office. And I will say the people that I worked with were, were very kind and pleasant, and I, I enjoyed them. Um, I did not necessarily enjoy the work. The first six months in Washington, D.C. are pretty fun, uh, a large part because you're going to, you can go to a different museum every week. But after the first six months, you kind of made the rounds of the sites to see. And I'm from Iowa, so I didn't know anybody out there. I didn't really have a family. I had a pretty good church. I, was, I, I liked them, but I was single. And after a while, you realize on the job, well, this is all there is to it. And it was it was a bureaucratic job. I was there to teach um, or train new field economists in collecting data for the occupational wage survey. Now, of course, what's interesting is I had never collected any data at all in that survey. So they sent me out a couple times to do some data collection. And, you know, that was that was okay. But you really got this sense that at the end of the day, you're, you're working to get all these statistics published. And I was left thinking, what positive good is there from all of this statistical work? You know, one of the justifications that they would give, especially for firms that participated in the survey, I was working in occupational wage surveys, and those uh, were not uh, mandatory, right? So that the, the, the businesses did not have to participate in them. But one of the selling points was that, look, if you participate in them, you'll get the published data, and that might help you in making wage decisions. But by the time the data is published, it's at least three, if not six months to a year old. And that's a little bit behind the curve when you're trying to maintain competitiveness. And it became very clear, too, that in the bureaucracy, you got to see all of the characteristic traits of bureaucracy and how what is organ, what does business organization look like when you're not constrained by the profit motive? So one of the most popular phrases that I heard uttered fairly regularly was, um, that's OK, we don't have to earn a profit. Um, or uh, that was the second most popular phrase. I said the first most popular phrase was, well, that's good enough for government work. <laughs> because, because they know that they're not, they're not going to lose any contracts. Right? They're not going to lose any customers because uh, the people are there. You know, the government makes their own customers in some sense. And so there's very little sense of economizing resources. So no matter how hard you worked, no matter how much you knew, it's very unlikely that you would get rewarded for it. And no matter how bad you were at your job, unless you just did something horrible like you know stole from the BLS, you probably weren't going to get fired either. So it really, I think, is very it's it's very hard to maintain a really strong worth work ethic. Um, it takes a, a, a tremendous strength of character to maintain a strong work ethic in that bureaucratic environment. 
And I don't think that that's something that's particular to the BLS. I just think that that's true about bureaucracy in general. So in other words, if something like a department or a job is run on tax revenue, so basically taking money by force from people to pay for what could be considered make work, you know, as you said, there's no, there's no um, emphasis on trying to earn a profit, which is what the free market would be all about. Like your success, your failure is dependent upon making something or doing something that is actually needed that people would be considered beneficial for them. But, you know, when it comes to a government bureaucracy, it's almost like a job welfare program. Is that, would that be your experience with the BLS as an example? Yeah. Oh yeah. In a, in a way, absolutely. I remember one of the things that uh, you'd hear from time to time is how, how big a sacrifice we were making for working for the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, working for the bureau because you know you could leave right now and go someplace else in the private sector and earn more money, get more benefits. And I, I mean, I you know maybe that was true for them. I was you know I was just out of college, and so I would chuckle. I thought I don't know, I don't know where where I could go and make the money I'm making with the vacation time off and the and and the and the healthcare benefits that I'm making now. And I just kept thinking, well, if, if that's the case, you know, what's keeping you here? Nothing's keeping anybody here. And so, quite frankly, I think that there, it seemed to be that there are a number of people that, that could have been successful in the private sector, but it was actually too costly for them to go. You know, they, they had a fairly guaranteed salary with significant amount of vacation time and significant amount of holiday time and, and health and good health care benefits. That's actually not easy to walk away from. One of the reasons, I mean, I only stayed there for two years. And one of the reasons I decided to go when I did, if I would have stayed one more week, I would have been up for a uh, sort of a guaranteed raise and a level movement. So I'd be moving up a couple levels. You know, this would have been back in 1991. And I would have gotten an extra, I don't know, $6,000, I think, per year uh, that would have went with sort of the automatic movement up the level. And I knew that that would have been even harder to walk away from. And so I purposed that, no, I'm not, I'm not going to stay more than two years because I don't want to get myself in a position where it was just too hard to walk away from the money and the benefits. I could have gotten sidetracked significantly. So I'm thankful that I didn't stay any longer than I did. You know, I have fond memories of the people I worked with. I am thankful that that I have an experience of what the bureaucracy is like on the inside. So I, I think I can speak about the economics of bureaucracy with with a little bit of you know with some authority uh, of experience, knowing what it what it was really like. You mentioned Mises's Human Action, like me, yes. Ludwig von Mises' book Human Action, and that really got you thinking. Could you describe a little bit about that book and how it got you thinking and how the philosophy of economics in Mises' work there um, is different from what is taught in economics today, especially in universities now and the prevailing economics of politics in nations today and, and also how you believe Mises's ideas of economics correlate with a Christian worldview. Yes. Well, as I said, in some sense, what really confirmed in my mind that economics was something that was worth pursuing was uh, buying a copy of Mises's Human Action from the old conservative book club. 
And I joined the Conservative Book Club because they had a special offer that I think for $10, you could get the complete works of Francis Schaeffer. And so I did that. And then they would send out, you know, monthly flyers with featured books. And you were sort of obligated, I think, to buy four books over the next three years. And Mises is Human Action came out and it was more expensive than, than, than their average book, but it was worth two selections, a required selection. So I went ahead and bought it and I started reading it. And from the very beginning, it's very clear. He builds economics up from the ground floor. And he says that all economic phenomena is the result of humans acting, of people engaging in purposeful behavior. They have ends that they want to achieve, and they obtain means they think they can use to fulfill those ends. And he makes it very clear that economics is not about investigating whether or not the ends are right or good. Uh, so he very clearly says economics is not ethics. You know, eth ethics deals with issues of right and wrong. Economics is, a, is about how people apply their means to achieve their ends, whatever those ends may be. And so I like the fact that he wasn't coming to economics with any preconceived arbitrary ethic of his own. I mean, he had, his, he had a particular ethic of his own. It was a utilitarian, so I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't agree with him on the basis of his ethics, but he didn't force that really. Um, you can see he does argue for it in a couple of places, but his economic analysis is not driven by that. And he also recognized that all economic phenomena, all of the prices that we see, all of the economic activity that goes on, all of the employment that takes place, it's the result of the actions of real human people. And so he emphasizes realism. In other words, he doesn't assume that anybody has perfect information. He doesn't uh, assume that, you know, that there's always a large number of competitors. Uh, he doesn't assume any artificial constructs. He doesn't assume that people pursue selfish ends. He doesn't presume that they pursue noble charitable ends. He recognizes and takes people for what they are, a sort of a mix. And um, I like that too. And so as I looked at it, it seemed very clear to me that the starting point of Mises's economics was very compatible with the Christian view of man as a purposeful actor made in God's image. Now, Mises didn't, you know, he was not a Christian, so the idea of humans being made in God's image was, was foreign to him. But I could see in the way he described and characterized human action that it was a view of action that was quite compatible with the scriptures. And so I said, well, if we take the scriptures seriously and we see what God tells us in his word about what we are like as human beings, and we can see that what we're like as human beings from our own experience and as described in the scriptures is basically what Mises says about us in terms of being a purposeful actor. Well, then there's this link then between what scripture says about us and a particular economic framework that can be derived from human action. And that framework is Mises's framework, which is known most predominantly as, as Austrian economics, uh, known as Austrian economics, because the, the first three generations of that tradition come out of the University of Vienna in Austria. And that term Austrian economics was sort of used as a pejorative, I think, from some German historicists that did not like the economic theory of the founders of Austrian economics. So they referred to him as, oh, that's Austrian economics. You know, it's not real. It's Austrian economics. Well, then, of course, the Austrians just embraced it. And, and so that's, that's what this tradition is, is known for. 
Uh, but the, the important point is that there's this affinity between the beginning point of Mises's economics, which is human action, and the Christian view of man. And because of that affinity, I, that's when I decided, you know what, if we can build economics from this foundation, then whatever comes after that in terms of the economics, as long as we're careful and, and we don't make any logical errors, the economics that come after that is also going to be compatible with the Christian view of man. And that's what I've found to be the case. Um, and I've been sort of pursuing economics with that in mind all these many years and now decades as I get a little older. So you'd say that economics, especially as proposed by Mises and the, the Austrian school tradition, is kind of a, an extension of like, or at least a subset of anthropology in a way. So if we compare the way the Austrian school think of economics as anthropology, and isn't that kind of different from what we hear today taught in universities from other schools of thought where economics is almost thought of like this hard math, and it's almost like it's some mechanical thing. But if economics is an extension or a part of anthropology, then as you said, you know, you'd see that economics is human action, that it lines up with the Bible, that we're really studying the actions of people here and different people. As uh, I think the Apostle Paul said that God is the one, he asked, who makes you to differ from one another? And we understand those differences that make us act there's equality among humans um, as human beings equal in the sight of God, but we all have our differences and our differences are what make us interact and exchange and benefit each other. And so how does economics as anthropology in your understanding differ from what is taught in the universities today? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, of course, you know, there, there is a spectrum uh, within the, the modern university setting, but I would say primarily the Austrian approach of Mises that is in some sense a, uh, whether whether he knew it or not, is it just an application of the Christian view of man uh, in economics. And uh, developing economics along those lines, you begin with not just an, uh, an assumption, you begin with the fact that humans act, that humans engage in purposeful behavior. And since you're beginning with a known fact that with that premise, then you can actually apply deduction, the laws of deduction in deducing true principles. What are the implications of the fact that humans act? And again, it, we're not talking about you know economic man, this artificial construct, but real human beings. When a real human person acts, what are some principles that we can glean from that? And so we glean uh, the fact that people have to choose between means because means are scarce. And so in choosing, they have to do one thing, but then they also have to choose not to do something else. And so that means that they have to evaluate and rank their ends. And so value is, is an implication of action. Benefit and cost, right? The benefit of whatever you receive from doing your action versus the cost. What do you give up by not doing something else, right? All those concepts are implied by human action because they're implications of real human action. Those principles are really true as well. And so you get a much more, shall we say, robust body of knowledge that we are happy to embrace. The other sort of mainstream, general, conventional wisdom view of things is that we may have an idea that humans act purposefully or that humans choose between alternatives. But in the way that the analysis is developed, it begins with models. 
It's modeling. So you begin with certain assumptions, uh, maybe the assumption that people have perfect information or the assumption that people receive utility uh, or satisfaction from certain goods and uh, more is preferred to less. And there's an assumption that we can rank our ends. We don't appeal to these as true facts. We appeal to them as assumptions that we think are sort of like human behavior. And so you start with these assumptions and then you represent economic relationships between variables in mathematical functions. That's typically the profession has become uh, heavily mathematized now. And so these economic relationships are represented as mathematical functions. And then you can engage in also making some further assumptions about the mathematical characteristics of these functions. You can do mathematical operations involving calculus and then, you know, maximize utility or minimize cost or maximize profit. And as a result of going through these calculus operations, we can find equilibrium conditions that will show us, for instance, what is the equilibrium combination of two goods a consumer can purchase to maximize his utility given his budget. And so it will, you know, you go through these mathematical operations and you come up with these equilibrium conditions. And then, you, and then you say, well, okay, what happens if we relax or change one of the parameters in our model or one of the uh, assumptions in our model, and then we get more results. And in some ways, right, in some ways, if you start with assumptions that are close enough to reality, you get an analysis that looks sort of similar to a human action perspective. And for instance, you can say, oh, well, prices are determined by supply and demand. Uh, the buyers and sellers, and there's an equilibrium price of so-and-so, and that looks very, it looks similar to what you arrive at in the Austrian analysis of prices as well, that it's the actions of the buyers and sellers that as they negotiate, they hammer out a market clearing price where everybody who wants to buy at that price can, everybody who wants to sell at that price can, and superficially, they look very similar, but how they get there and the foundations they're built upon is, is noticeably different. The typical models are not meant necessarily to represent reality or to look like the real world in which we live. Uh, they are meant to demonstrate, does this model have equilibrium uh, characteristics that are stable and that then we can quote unquote test with data, wherein because the Austrian economic analysis is built on reality of human action, we don't have to test our conclusions. As long as we don't make any logical errors, the conclusions necessarily will be true as well. And so I was always one in school when someone came to a conclusion, I always want to say, why? How, why? Why is it the case? How do we know this? And with the Austrian perspective, you can go all the way back. You can at every statement say, well, why, why is the price where it is? Well, it's because of the preferences of the buyers and the preferences of the sellers. Well, what would happen if the price was higher? Well, the buyers would buy less. Why? Because of the law of marginal utility, which says that if the quantity of the good increases, the marginal utility of the good falls. Well, why is that the case? Well, it's because of the nature of human action. Oh, okay. Well, where does, why is that important? Because that's what humans are. By nature, they act. And so you can go back to the very foundation of the analysis, and there's a, there's a causal link that links the foundational premise with all of the rest of, of the economic uh, laws that we're actually uh, discovering. And you don't have that type of foundational link in the same way in the conventional quantitative analysis. In fact, you have equilibrium conditions and results of the analysis that are only as good and only as relevant as uh, the assumptions of the models. And a lot of the assumptions are very unrealistic indeed. And so, you know, I remember studying that some in graduate school. 
And I, you know, there were times when you're reading through this model and say, well, let us, you know, assume this and assume that and assume the other thing. And you get done with this list of four or five assumptions and you're left thinking this is completely divorced from reality. Uh, but you have to kind of learn the, learn the model anyway. Yeah. So some of these models were, it's like they use big aggregates. Uh, I know, was it uh, John Maynard Keynes who proposed the C plus I plus G equals Y? Or you have a formula where it's like you have a variable for capital, but it's not like all capital is good capital or a variable for investment, but it's like not all investment is good investment. And, you know, when you have like spending, it's like, well, obviously not all spending is created equal. And so it's kind of hard with these formulas like that to say that the output, even if you have a larger number, like when you have what's reported as GDP for a nation, like we think about back in World War II, as I think as economist Robert Higgs pointed out, that the wartime prosperity, you know, is not an accurate representation or wartime spending was not a an accurate representation of prosperity. And because these formulas show a big number at the end, well, look at all that prosperity because we have a lot of spending. But were people really prosperous during World War II when we had a lot of the, you know, healthy young men shipped off overseas to fight and possibly die. We had a lot of people working at home to produce weapons and tanks to be shipped overseas. You had a lot of women who would normally be able to watch their children at home having to enter the workforce. You know, you have the pride of Rosie the Riveter, but still, like, is that all prosperity just because you have a formula that shows that you have a larger number at the end and really as Christians and as economists, should we actually think that way? Like human action, according to Mises, would show that um, there's more actual productivity and usefulness for capital formation in society, you know, is a better indicator of prosperity than simply an aggregate of spending, whether by citizens for whatever reason or by the government. Am I understanding things correctly? Yeah, I would say basically you're, you're, you're right on. Um, yeah, all GDP is is a number that tracks, essentially tracks spending. Uh, now, the idea is that it's, it tracks spending the economy and to the extent that it is, uh, you know, it's measuring things in market prices. Well, then it, it is connected to uh, the actual purchases that people actually make to, to better the lives of themselves and their families. But on the other hand, a good portion of that spend, well, two questions, a good portion of that spending is government spending, which essentially is government consumption. And that is not, that spending is not spending that it is, uh, that, that obviously uh, improves uh, welfare of people in society. It improves the welfare of the bureaucrat, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's spending that's wise or it's spending on productive activity. In fact, you could almost bet the opposite because if people wanted that activity, they wouldn't have to have the government do it. They would voluntarily do it. And so uh, you've got that issue. And then additionally, uh, you're quite right that the uh, GDP figures are a very a much, uh, it's very much an aggregative statistic. So it's, it's a sum of consumption spending and investment spending and uh, government spending uh, minus exports. 
And it doesn't matter what the consumer dollar is spent on. It doesn't matter how the investment dollar is spent. It just needs to be spent and it's going to contribute to GDP in a given period. And that is, I think, a big weakness in pointing to GDP as a measure of economy or even a measure, some people, as a measure of welfare, because it doesn't measure that. It just measures how much spending occurred. But there could be a lot of spending in any given any given year. It could be quite a bit of spending by the government and quite a bit of spending by investors on capital that turns out to be uh, wasteful spending, turns out to be spending on things that we're going to earn a loss. And so even when uh, it shows up as a positive boost to GDP, that investment spending could be could be actually uh, destructive, could actually be spent on wasteful activity. And that doesn't actually help economic prosperity at all. Uh, so, yeah, I think that uh, you have to be you have to be very leery. We don't want to ever sort of equate GDP with the economy. So basically like paying someone to dig a ditch and then paying someone else to fill it back in, both that, the spending on both of those would be counted toward gross domestic product, which would, you know, like say, if you were to spend a lot more on that, you know, you could actually end up with a larger number and say, wow, look at how successful, look at how our economy grew this year. So as you said, spending in these aggregates can represent a destruction of wealth in some of the accounting rather than actual useful productive wealth. <laughs> so Absolutely. So I want to get back to my next question. I want to get back to the Bible and Austrian economics as it relates to other schools of economics. So in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 15, we have, thou shalt not steal. So the Bible clearly seems to uh, support the idea that people actually own things. They have private property. And verse 17, thou shall not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, or anything that is thy neighbor's. And so part of the Decalogue is this command not to steal, but then finally not to covet, which yeah. is to desire what other people have, that you either have no right to it or you have not earned it. And it's interesting that the Bible says a lot about covetousness. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 7 said that he, he didn't even realize that he was a lawbreaker until he realized that the law said, thou shalt not covet. Mm. Ephesians 5, 5, Colossians 3, 5 equate covetousness with idolatry, which really makes covetousness a violation of both tables of the law. Right. Um, yeah. So, and Romans 1 verses 28 through 32 mentions covetousness in a list of sins that describe a reprobate mind. And uh, Paul says that these are worthy of death. First uh, Corinthians 5.11, we are to separate from covetous people and to avoid fellowshipping with them. Ephesians 5.3, let covetousness not once be named among the saints. And First uh, Corinthians 6.10 and Ephesians 5.5 5 both mention covetousness in a list of descriptions of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so it seems that Austrian economics is close enough to the Bible in that really there's this idea that people 
own things and that we shouldn't support policies that enable or contribute to covetousness or stealing from people. Is this your understanding that Austrian economics is more biblical compared to other schools of economics that seem to kind of provide a backdoor toward stealing allegedly to improve the economy. Right, yeah, that's a good point. I, I there there are different perspectives on this on this issue on the the basis for private property that is what you're talking about amongst Austrians. Mises himself was sort of a utilitarian and so he thought that you know the vast majority he he was basically he thought what he was doing was simply describing the way things are. And he said that it's, um, you know, his, his, his work, even on private property, was not necessarily connected to his ethics, but he was just saying that it is the vast majority of people in the world prefer life to death. They prefer prosperity to poverty. They prefer uh, a flourishing, you know, a human flourishing to cultural ossification. And he thought that the achievement of, of civilization is the result of the market division of labor and capital accumulation. And those two pillars, if you will, division of labor and capital accumulation, work together to allow us to build a civilization and for people to live in society with one another and to uh, participate in what we would call human flourishing. Now, all of that activity has to be coordinated somehow, right? Um, it doesn't just happen automatically like the models would have us speak. Human beings have to allocate resources certain ways. Now, how do we do this? We've seen from socialist experiments that it's bound to fail. Socialism is bound to fail. They can't do it efficiently. But entrepreneurs do do it efficiently. Right? We use entrepreneurs, and these entrepreneurs use market prices to calculate profit and loss, and hence they have a, a way to uh, direct scarce factors of production, scarce land, labor, capital goods towards the production of goods that are most highly valued in their use. Uh, and that they can produce then and sell for a profit. And so it's the market price system that allows for all of this type of activity to take place. Now, every one of those things we talked about, the market division of labor, capital accumulation, entrepreneurship and market prices, requires private property to exist and to be defended so that people can participate in voluntary exchange and hence have an incentive to participate in the division of labor. They need private property for investors to have the incentive to invest in long-term capital projects with the expectations that they won't get their property taken from them. Uh, entrepreneurs need market prices that are arrived at voluntarily through free trade, voluntary exchange made possible by private property. All of these sources of prosperity and hence civilization require private property to exist. And that was, in some sense, Mises' great argument for private property, that if we don't have it, if we, if we don't have private property, we don't have voluntary exchange, we don't have voluntary exchange, we don't get the market division of labor, we don't get capital accumulation, and we don't, we don't have real functional entrepreneurship. And so we, as a society, we would be doomed. Now, interestingly enough, Francis Wayland, a, uh, a Baptist uh, minister and uh, college, or college president from the uh, mid-1800s, he wrote an interesting book called uh, The Elements of Moral Science. It's basically a book on ethics, and he taught this subject as the capstone course at all the students that went through what is now Brown University when he was president. He taught the capstone course. And in that, he has a very interesting chapter on the ethics of property. And he declares property to be a divine right. Private property is ethical because it's part of God's moral law. And Wayland says God makes it known to us in three ways. 
one in our natural conscience, right? We just know that it's it's wrong to steal, and we know that we are we are offended, not just inconvenience, but somebody does us wrong when they steal from us. So we just know from natural conscience. And then he says, we also know that private property is ethical and part of God's moral law because of the general consequences of having private property or societies that don't have private property. And he points out when societies don't have private property, they must exist in poverty and squalor and wretchedness. But those societies that do maintain and defend and hold private property uh, sacrosanct, they are the ones that are prosperous because you it provides all of this incentive that I've already talked about and all of the ability that I've already talked about to participate in productive activity and the division of labor, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, he says, on top of all that, we know that private property is part of the moral law because of what God tells us in his word, uh, in accordance with the scriptures that you've already read in, in this podcast. And so, the, as I would put it, the economics of the case is part of, shall we say, uh, say general revelation. And it shows, the economic analysis of property shows how private property is beneficial to human civilization. And uh, the scriptures show us that it's part of God's moral law in a way, again, that God's creation in some sense fits very well with his moral law. And the more we keep God's moral law, the more prosperous we can be. And so that, again, I think is, is an affinity there where it, with Austrian economics, not that the Austrians embrace private property based on the scriptures, but the recognition of the benefits of private property and, and, and the negative consequences of market interventions and, and having your property stole from you. All of that is basically a sort of a general revelation demonstration in the created order of God's moral law and the benefits thereof. So this is kind of like what you're talking about. Uh, I listened to your or watched your lecture that you gave at the Mises Institute about Austrian economics and common grace. Could you just yes. briefly uh, discuss the, the theory of that? Sure. Yeah, I would say that uh, you know, common grace is this idea that, well, an understanding of common grace is an understanding that God is gracious. God is gracious in a special way, in a saving way to those people he saves. Uh, but then he's also gracious to uh, people in general by, uh, well, for one, not not wiping us off the face of the earth the minute we sin, but allowing us to live and breathe. That's grace. He would be perfectly justified in having us experience his wrath right now. But he graciously allows us to to live, and he allows us to participate in some of the benefits of life. And part of the benefits of life is discovering certain aspects of his creation. And I would argue that that's essentially what happened with Mises. Um, Mises was not one who embraced Christ, sadly. Uh, but he was one who was able to discover this way of looking at economics and, and building upon his teachers that came before him, Karl Menger and Eugen von Bomber. But he was able to develop this body of economics that not explicitly, uh, self-consciously built on Christian foundations, but nevertheless was built on a view of man that really was a Christian view of man in, in reality, if not self-consciously so. 
And so I think that that's a case where the reason we can, that, that's, that's what I would consider God's common grace, that even though uh, Mises was not a Christian and therefore didn't have the mind of Christ, God allowed him to discover something that is compatible, very much compatible with God's special revelation that we know to be true as inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, Sean, I want to get to the last point of our discussion, which I'm sure we're all rather tired of having to talk about, but you wrote your book, Foundations of Economics, A Christian View, and I know we're probably all tired of talking about this current pandemic and all the politics around it and the economics, really the the economic problems that are occurring as a result of it. And so, as a Christian economist with a, a PhD, PhD in economics, what are your thoughts about basically state governments or handling this pandemic? Are there any problems with the economy? Do you think there's overreach? And do you have any thoughts about where you think things might be going and what the road to recovery might look like? Oh boy. Yeah, that's those are all good questions. I opened um, Pandora's box. It's huh? it's hard. It's really hard to answer that. That's yes, yes. Uh it's really difficult to give a definitive answer because in many ways this is really unprecedented. I mean this this full almost full, I'm not complete, but but a significant lockdown of the economy has never really been tried before, at least in a you know, in a market society. And but in essence, I mean it the the it's it's, it's as if the government has just decided that it was it, it, it's worth it to just restrict the production of all sorts of economic goods. And I think that, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very strange because on the one hand, okay, obviously right now you have loads of people thrown out of work, unemployment applications zoomed into the stratosphere, uh, highest level uh, perhaps ever. And, uh, and so that can't be good. The government just passed a $2 trillion stimulus package. And so $2 trillion is going, with a T, is going to be injected into the uh, economy. And where's that money coming from? Well, it's not going to come all from taxes because uh, the tax, the taxes aren't, the tax revenues aren't going to be that that hot. I mean, because most of our tax revenue is funded by income tax. When incomes have collapsed because economic activity has collapsed, income tax is going to be really, really thin. So you know it's going to be borrowed, and that's going to cause interest rates to go up. Well, the government doesn't want that. The Federal Reserve doesn't want that. So the Federal Reserve has already acted to provide I mean, loads and loads of liquidity, bank reserves, into the financial system. And if that, and again, we're talking trillions of dollars, that money then gets lent directly to the government through the banking system. We're essentially monetizing the debt, monetizing the payments. And so that money is all going to get into the hands of the people at the same time that we're cutting back on production. So in general, there will be lower supplies of goods available. It won't be universal, but in general, lower supplies of goods and increased demand for goods because of increase uh, or because of the new money. And that's a recipe for significant price inflation. Uh, and but we don't know how you know we don't know where all that new money's going to go if commercial banks just sop up the new money and just hold it in their reserves because they don't because of their uncertainty well then the price pressure won't be as bad but no one knows exactly what it's going to look like coming out of this thing 
the bottom line for recovery purposes, the bottom line is we need to respect private property, which means we need to allow at some point, and I, you know, I don't know, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know all that there is to know about the disease and the virus and everything else. I don't know to what extent the entire lockdown was necessary or not necessary. Was it helpful or not helpful? But I do know this, what governments tend to do is they tend to look at what is seen and not at what is unseen. That goes way back to Frederick Bastiat and then Henry Hazlitt's Economics of One Lesson. And what they see is this fear of the, the specter of the pandemic. So we've got to shut everything down. What they don't see, what they don't think about long term is the consequences. What are the economic consequences of this? And uh, they're not pretty. We know, historically anyway, that on average in the United States, for every 1% that unemployment increases, a suicide rate goes up by 1%. And if you got a bunch of people who are out of work, they, they don't know when this is going to end, they're in isolation, and they, they don't have a very good support network, they can become depressed, they can do very destructive things. And it's just, those are the kind of things that I think people sort of forget about. They see, oh, we're, we want to prevent the pandemic, but there's a significant amount of cost, economic cost, and then just cost uh, in human life and human flourishing that tends to be discounted. And I don't really think there's a good way to, there's not a good scientific way of making these comparisons. Nobody should be under the impression that, that it's painless. Um, and nobody should just assume that, let's suppose that in a, in a month, this all goes away. No one should assume that, okay, when we start up again, everything's going to go back to normal. Everyone's go, everything's going to go back to the same way it was because some people may be able to get their debt restructured, but other people aren't going to be able to get their debt restructured. And those people are going to be bankrupt and insolvent. They're not going to get their capital back. And so they're just going to be out of work forever. They're going to have to participate again in the resaving and the rebuilding up of capital but it becomes harder because the government has already given significant purchasing power to other people who are out there directing resources towards themselves. So I think the technical term for it is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> that's an economic and, term. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And it's hard to say exactly. Well, we don't know exactly what's going to happen because there's a whole host of variables. Uh, like I said, the key variable is what are, what are banks going to do with the new reserves? But even if we had some inkling about that, some of these actions are so broad and so, frankly, totalitarian that uh, we haven't had experience with that in the past. So we know that restricting economic activity and, and constraining the division of labor is destructive. It's destructive of wealth. It's destructive of society and civilization. We know that significant monetary inflation is destructive. And we got both of those. So I would say don't, if, if, if people are getting those uh, stimulus checks, uh, I would say don't blow them all in one spot. I would say hang on to them, try to build up some savings, try to get out of debt, because we don't know how bad this thing is going to be coming out the other end. But that's all speculation. Yeah, for sure. But it's it's interesting how with the, the stimulus checks, some of the, the politicians, you know, what you suggested, saving them and trying to pay down your debts. Um, it's, it seems like most of the politicians expect that you need to you know, basically blow it on consumer goods. Like I, I think 
I remember, was it Nancy Pelosi wanted to propose this digital wallet system and try to ram that through in an effort for the government to be able to give people stimulus money, but somehow digitally control how people use it. So to make sure that you can't spend it on paying off credit card debt or student loans or put it towards your mortgage or whatever, and you can't put it in a bank and save it. You've got to blow it on something because somehow just blowing it on consumer goods is supposed to be what would stimulate the economy. So it's it's kind of interesting with the minds of some of these politicians when they don't think like an Austrian economist or really like the way the Bible would propose things to work. <laughs> Absolutely, they get it completely. They get it completely backwards. It goes right back to what you were talking about earlier. This mindset that uh, what matters is spending, and especially consumption spending. Well, because consumption spending makes up roughly sixty-nine to seventy percent of GDP, people think if we stimulate consumption, we're stimulating the big part of GDP, and they they completely miss the point that what drives the economy is actual production. It's it's valuable production. And that requires saving and investment, saving and wise investment in the production of goods that people actually want. Uh, and so this idea that we're just going to keep the economy going by spending is, is also a recipe for relative impoverishment and economic destruction. Well, Sean, I'd like to wrap up our discussion um, for this episode. Is there anything uh, that you would like to leave us with or anything that you'd like to plug before we end our discussion? Oh, well, uh, you had mentioned, I mean, I don't know, you mentioned my book uh, very kindly. Um, it's still for sale. Uh, you can get it at Amazon. I tried to write it in a way that the principles are not uh, dependent upon any sort of time-sensitive example. Uh, the, the truth is truth for all time. So if you're interested in economics from a Christian perspective, I would humbly submit that uh, my book, Foundations of Economics, is a good place to start. Um, you also mentioned that I've written a lot. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a senior fellow with the Mises Institute. I've written a lot with them, so you could you could look at some of my my writings there. Um, I also have written for the Institute for Faith and Freedom here at Grove City College, and so that's a place you could maybe check out as well. Well, thank you, Sean Rittenauer, Dr. Sean Rittenauer, for being with us. And so I would like to encourage our listeners to check out uh, Sean Rittenauer's book, Foundations of Economics. And I will provide links in the show notes uh, for several of Dr. Rittenauer's uh, videos and lectures and uh, your book. And well, Dr. Rittenauer, Rittenauer, thank you for being with us and God bless. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 